to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, this morning in verses 53 to 65, Mark 14, 53 to 65, this I believe is on page 851 of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you if you need a copy of God's Word. Because you're turning there, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We have heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him, to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. There is uh, something extremely appealing about courtroom dramas. I grew up watching Perry Mason. Anyone remember that? Perry Mason and and Matlock on TV. Uh, There are over 20 seasons of Law and Order. Newer shows like Suits and The Lincoln Lawyer and a host of others have continued to carry on this popular genre. And recently I have been watching a a Korean show called Extraordinary Attorney Woo. It's about a lawyer with autism who is able to best all her opponents in the courtroom through her amazing ability to recall things. There's just something about these shows that appeals to us. These shows appeal to our sense of right and wrong. They take us on a fascinating journey to discover all the the relevant evidence of a legal case. And they all seem to end in an intense courtroom scene where, amidst a web of lies and deceptive tactics, the truth is eventually unveiled. 
This morning, we get brought into one of those courtroom scenes in our passage from the Gospel of Mark. But this episode in the life of Jesus is not one of law and order. It is a, a, it is a trial filled with flaws and murder. Now, this isn't about a good-looking legal team in suits, but it does feature the exaggerated tearing of a, of a garment, a, a suit, if you will, as the charge of blasphemy of May is made. This is not an account about an extraordinary attorney named Wu, but rather it's about an extraordinary defendant who would allow himself to be wrongly condemned. And what we find in this trial is the very opposite of what we love to see when we watch legal dramas on TV. Because we don't find justice. The truth does not seem to prevail at the end. What we find in this trial is, is Jesus actually facing a slew of injustices. But, but despite all the unfair treatment he received, there, there is something about Jesus that is just different. He doesn't defend himself, doesn't offer any cross-examination. He's silent. But when he speaks, what he says speaks volumes. As we look to his response today, we, we need to take note. We need to remember his example and follow it as we are confronted with injustices in our own lives. In the midst of injustice, Jesus was able to endure because he trusted that he would be vindicated in the end. And we too can face miscarriages of justice in this world when we have the same kind of confident trust in the plan of God that Jesus did. This morning we return to Mark 14 and the night before Jesus' death. After having one last meal with his disciples, Jesus had retreated with them to the Garden of Gethsemane outside of Jerusalem on the western slope of the Mount of Olives. He went there to pray and he prayed multiple times to his father so that he might be strengthened for the unenviable task that was before him at the cross. And he came out of that time of prayer, resolved to continue to follow the preordained plan that he had come to earth to carry out. And in that garden, Jesus was, was confronted with a crowd of soldiers and Jewish leaders. They were, they were led by his own friend Judas, who had betrayed him. And instead of resisting or fighting, Jesus allowed himself to be arrested, to be taken away by them. And this caused all his disciples to flee. They fled from him in shame. But Jesus continued on. He went with his arresters because he was on a mission to suffer and die in order to redeem. Now after Jesus' arrest... The next step in the plan of the Jewish leaders was to have him tried. He would be tried by the Jews. He would also be tried by the Romans. In fact, he would be subject to no less than six trials in the early night on the Friday of that week. He would be tried by the former high priest Annas, the current high priest Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin. But he would also be tried by Pilate, he would be tried by Herod, and then Pilate once again. And John tells us in chapter 18 of his gospel 
that the first place to which the soldiers took Jesus was the house of Annas. And Annas was the influential father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest who was actually serving at the time. Annas had been high priest around 86 or so, and, and he was high priest until he was deposed by the Romans around AD 15. But his continuing influence was seen in the fact that five of his sons, as well as his son-in-law Caiaphas, all served as high priests after him. So Annas was the, the patriarch of a, of a high priestly family. And even when he didn't have the title or the responsibility of the office, he continued to enjoy much of its dignity, much of its influence. Many believe that he was the puppet master behind the Jewish religious scene. He was connected to the temple trading business. He was wealthy. He was respected. What he thought and what he said held weight. So that's probably one of the reasons why the current religious leadership had Jesus brought first to Annas after his arrest, because they maybe believed he could coax something out of Jesus. Or maybe they, they just wanted to ensure that the Jewish people knew that the esteemed Annas was also in support of putting Jesus away. Another reason could be that they just needed some more time to assemble the Sanhedrin for the next and more important trial that was to come at the home of the current high priest. And that is where we find Mark picking up his narrative. In verses 53 and 54 of chapter 14, we find Jesus being led on a journey to Caiaphas' house for the second trial of the night. Okay, let's look at this journey to Caiaphas' house. The journey... To Caiaphas's house. We read in verse 53 that they led Jesus to the high priest. Mark doesn't mention his name, but Matthew does in Matthew 26, 57. John also does in John 18, 24. And Matthew actually tells us that this house of Caiaphas was a common meeting place for the leadership of Israel as they tried to deal with the problem of Jesus. He writes in Matthew 26.3 that a couple days earlier, the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So, this house of Caiaphas was kind of like the headquarters of the Jewish coalition that was plotting to eliminate Jesus during... Passion Week. And here in Mark 14, we see that the same group of people, along with the scribes, came back together after Jesus' arrest. And, and Mark tells us that all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. These groups were representative of the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council of the day. Chief priests included the, the high priest and former high priests and their relatives. The elders were the lay leaders and heads of local Jewish families, often wealthy. And the scribes were experts in the Jewish law, the Torah. Now, when Mark writes all in verse 53, he's not saying that everyone in these groups descended upon Caiaphas' pad, but rather that the, the whole Sanhedrin was there. The Mishnah tells us that the Sanhedrin was made up of 70 people, 
plus the high priest at the time. And this was patterned after God's instruction to Moses in Numbers chapter 11, verse 16, where God had instructed Moses to select 70 additional elders to stand with him before God in leading the people of Israel. Now, this doesn't mean that all 70 members made this midnight dash to get to Caiaphas's place. For the Sanhedrin to all be gathered together, or for the Sanhedrin to be whole, as it says in verse 55, you needed a simple quorum, at least one-third, or 23 of its members. So you can imagine this to be a group of dozens of the leading men of Israel who had been called upon by the urgency of the situation to come and meet at the house of the high priest. In verse 54, we find that they were joined by at least one other. Mark writes that Peter had followed Jesus at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. Now that phrase, at a distance, tells us a lot about Peter's state of mind at this time. With the other disciples, he had just fled from Jesus at his arrest. But here we see that he has summoned enough courage to follow him once again, yet it's still at a distance. You, know, you, you can almost feel Peter trying to keep his vow back in verse 29 that he would, would not fall away from Jesus, even if others did. In a sense, he was being brave. He had summoned what little faith he could summon. But his faith was wavering. His way of following Jesus in this moment wasn't costly. It was safe. He wanted to be somewhat near Jesus, but he also wanted to stay far enough away so that he wouldn't be associated with Jesus by those who were hostile to him. And, and Peter made it all the way into the courtyard of Caiaphas' residence. John tells us in John 18 that he was able to get in through the connection of another disciple who knew the high priest, likely John himself. And, and there in that courtyard, Mark tells us he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. It was a cold night, so Peter tried to get comfortable, even if it meant sitting next to the temple guards or the servants of the high priest, some of whom had likely been part of the arresting party of Jesus in Gethsemane. Now, we're going we're gonna to find out more about what happened to Peter next time we're in Mark. This verse simply introduces him into the scene, and, and it's Mark's way of foreshadowing his coming denials. Well, this, there was a part of Peter that wanted to follow his Lord, but only at a distance. And the first two verses in our passage today describe the journey of both Jesus and Peter to Caiaphas' house. These two verses set up for us what's going to happen next. Jesus is inside, Peter's outside. One of them will endure the abuse of his accusers for the sake of others. The other will deny their claims for the sake of self-preservation. And as I said, we'll com consider Peter more next time. Today we're going to stay with Mark as he directs us back inside the high priest's house to the trial that had been set up for Jesus. And as we move from the journey to Caiaphas' house, or as we move on from the journey to Caiaphas' house, we, we move to the chicanery of the trial. The chicanery of the trial. Now, if you don't know that word, it is spelled C-H-I-C-A-N-E-R-Y. 
You could, you could also use the word dishonesty, if you want, the dishonesty of the trial. Um, that's what verses 55 to 59 are all about. But I personally like the word chicanery because it more accurately describes what was happening that night. Chicanery is the use of, of trickery. It's the use of clever speech in order to deceive, to achieve a political, legal, or financial purpose. It's the use of trickery and clever speech in order to deceive, to achieve an intended political, legal, or financial goal. And that is exactly what happened when Jesus was tried by Caiaphas. The chicanery of the trial. We see this in verse 55. Look there with me. It says, Now the chief priests and the whole council. Again, that's the quorum of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was like the Supreme Court of Israel. Okay, the priests and the council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Let's just stop there for a moment. When Mark writes that they were seeking testimony he uses the imperfect tense of the Greek verb. That means that this was something they had already been doing for a while and were continuing to do. The, the religious leaders had been on a mission to find credible witnesses to bring Jesus down. And not merely to put him away in jail or to diminish his influence, but to actually put him to death. We, we learned about this all the way back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, near the beginning of Mark's account of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. There, Jesus, or Mark, I should say, wrote that the Pharisees held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus regarding how to destroy him. Jesus had already become a thorn in the side of the Jewish teachers of the law and political leaders, and this opposition to, to Jesus continued to grow at the higher levels of Jesus of Jewish influence as Jesus made his way through Galilee. But Jesus was, was, a, was a somewhat distant problem for them still. It really wasn't until he made his way into Jerusalem during that final week that, that he became an unavoidable issue for them to address. Not only was he the most popular person in town, but his actions against them in the temple, his re- responses to their questions, and the parables that he told against them made it impossible in, in their minds for him to stay around. And so they had made the decision a couple days earlier, back in Mark chapter 14, verse 1, to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But To murder him without cause would have certainly caused an uproar. So they decided instead to find a crime to attach to Jesus that would be worthy of death. And he probably had many little things they could bring up about Jesus, you know, doing work on the Sabbath, disrespecting Jewish traditions, uh, eating with sinners. but, But they didn't want Jesus just to receive a slap on the hand for not keeping all their Jewish rules. They needed to pin something much bigger on him. And, and they had a pretty high threshold to clear. Right? Not only did this reason need to pacify the Jewish populace that was so found, fond of him, but it also needed to be accepted by the Romans who reserved the right to capital punishment within their empire for themselves. Now, the, the verdict of the Sanhedrin regarding the guilt of Jesus had already been decided. This wasn't an impartial trial. The outcome had already been 
identified. It was just a matter of getting there. So at the very outset, we learn that this is a trial with a specific purpose. Not, not to find out the, the truth, as we are so accustomed to watching on the shows that we watch on TV, but to achieve a verdict that the leaders of Israel had already deemed to be true in their minds. Unfortunately for them, they were having trouble finding the right reason and the right witness. In fact, Mark writes that they had found none at the end of verse 55. And in verse 56, he writes, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Despite the duplicity of these leaders in bringing Jesus to trial, they they still had some standards that they had to keep to ensure that they didn't lose all their integrity with the Jewish people. They they were still impelled to follow the Torah, the law of Moses, which stated in Deuteronomy 17.6, that on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. This was a, a kangaroo court. It was a real mock trial. But even so, the Sanhedrin still had to follow some standards. Now, in verse 57, we learn that some of these witnesses finally stood up with a, with a clear accusation to make. In Matthew 26, 60 says there were two of them. And they bore false witness against Jesus, a saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now this was a serious charge. The temple was the center of Jewish worship. The the temple complex was the pride of the Jewish people. It was a lavish and and beautiful place. It was where the the Sanhedrin usually met in the chamber of hewn stone. This was the center of Jewish culture. It was the center of Jewish prominence. It was the place where God dwelt. The hope of Judaism was tied to the temple. So for someone to come and say that he would destroy the the temple was unconscionable. Back in Jeremiah 26, which was hundreds of years before Jesus' day, Jeremiah had prophesied about the destruction of the temple. And because of it, he was arrested as a criminal deserving death. But the problem back at Caiaphas' pad was that Jesus never said these exact words. In, in Mark chapter 13, 2, we learn that Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, but he never said that he would be the one to destroy it. Now, the closest we get to the words quoted by these witnesses is in John's gospel. And so I want you to turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. And I want you to look with me at verse 19 of that chapter, John chapter 2, verse 19. This is near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's about three years prior when he had cleared those selling and changing money out of the temple the first time. Okay, so let's, let's start with verse 18, actually. Okay, John writes in John chapter 2, verse 18, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things, clearing out the temple? And Jesus answered them, in verse 19, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Okay, so from, from John 2, you should notice that there are many similarities with the testimony provided by the two witnesses at Caiaphas' house back in Mark 14. But there are some important differences. First, Jesus wasn't actually talking about destroying the physical temple. He was talking about the temple of his body. He promised that if they destroyed it, if they killed him, it would be raised in three days. Obviously, the Jews didn't fully get that, but nevertheless, that was Jesus' meaning. More importantly, you should notice in John 2 that Jesus never actually said that he would destroy the temple. Whether you understand the temple to be the actual temple in Jerusalem or his body, Jesus never said that he would do it. And, And back in Mark 14, when the false witnesses gave their testimony against Jesus, they placed special emphasis on Jesus saying, I will destroy the temple. The I there is emphatic in the Greek. They were emphasizing that. But Jesus never actually said that. He predicted the temple's downfall, but but never said that he would be the cause of it. Rather, the temple would fall in AD 70 to the Romans as a result of God's judgment on the people of Israel. So, this accusation levied against Jesus was false. And we read in verse 59, back in Mark 14, yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Again, there there were inconsistencies in the testimonies of the witnesses that had been recruited to speak against Jesus. And just the inability of the Sanhedrin to find credible witnesses to support their thesis that Jesus was worthy of death is striking in these verses. They tried to use the testimony of others in order to deceive, in order to achieve their evil ends, but it was all so poorly done. They couldn't find a plausible reason with consistent testimony to put Jesus on the cross. The dishonesty, the chicanery of this trial was egregious. Yet the trial was not over. Sensing that all the witnesses who had been recruited were failing him, Caiaphas took matters into his own hands. He, he began to question Jesus himself. And what I want you to pay attention to is the way that Jesus responded to him. In Jesus' response, we find a picture of confidence. We, we see the confidence of Christ in verses 60 to 62. Having first been led on a journey into Caiaphas' palace, and then having was painfully seen the chicanery of the trial that was held there, we take now, time now to consider the confidence of Christ. The confidence of Christ. In verse 60, we... We read that Caiaphas, the high priest, stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And notice verse 61. But he remained silent and made no answer. Just think about that. Jesus, Jesus had been silent this whole time. Witness after witness had been brought against him to bring some silly accusation. Imagine all the lies about him that Jesus had to listen to that night. But he hadn't said a word. 
He had already been arrested for no good reason. He had been unfairly put on trial. And now he had to endure men bringing false charges against him. He had to listen to people defame him, defame him and his motives. He had to hear people testify that how he had apparently done wrong. This was a test of patience. To hear untruths spread widely to others about yourself is probably one of the hardest things to endure in life. You can take my health, you can take my youth, take my money, and that, that might hurt for a time. But to take away my reputation, to cast untrue, evil motives upon me, that's going to hurt me much deeper. David himself said in Psalm 120, verse 2, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Right? It is painful to be subject to the lies of others, but this was part of what Jesus endured for us. This was part of his plan all along. Isaiah 53, 7 says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In the midst of false accusations, Jesus did not defend himself. And we shouldn't think that we will be treated better than him. The world will slander Christians. They have, and they will misrepresent us. They will make us out to have evil motives and backward worldviews. But let's not think that's abnormal. Because this is how they treated our Lord. We, we shouldn't expect to be treated any better. Jesus actually said in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. But, but Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, seeing that Jesus wasn't going to respond to any of these false witnesses, Caiaphas changed his line of questioning. At the end of verse 62, he, he asked Jesus directly, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Messiah? Are, are you the Anointed One sent by God to deliver His people? And, and he added the Son of the Blessed. That's another way of saying Son of God. It's a, a roundabout way of, of saying God without saying the divine name since the Jews are particularly careful about that. Now know that Caiaphas wasn't asking Jesus if he was claiming to be divine here. He wasn't asking whether Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He didn't have that theological category in his mind. He was simply asking if Jesus had the unique relationship that the Messiah was thought to have with God. He wanted to know if Jesus really thought of himself as the deliverer of God's people who had a special relationship with God. This was the, the crux of the whole trial. Did Jesus believe he was sent by God to destroy the temple, usurp the Romans, and establish a new kingdom on earth? And it's at this point that Jesus finally spoke. He said in verse 62, I am. I am. I, I'm inclined to think that's a simple affirmation from Jesus. You know, in the Old Testament, when Moses asked God what his name was, he said, I am who I am. I don't think Jesus was necessarily trying to say here that he was the great I am, even though he was, he is. There's no clear indication that he was using 
And these words to claim that he possessed the divine name himself by, by nature of the way that Caiaphas posed his question, the natural response of Jesus would have just been to say, I am. Jesus clearly identified himself as the Messiah, and that in and of itself was significant. Throughout Mark's gospel, we have, have seen Jesus ask those around him not to make his divine sonship known. He has been veiling his identity during his ministry because he is concerned that the people would not understand his true purpose and mission. He was the Christ, but he wasn't the Christ that they were expecting. Yet here in Mark 14.62, at his trial, Jesus finally revealed clearly in public that he was the Christ. And the secret that he had been protecting for so long was finally exposed. Why? Why at this point? Because Jesus was now firmly on the way to his death. What was missing before in his ministry was the understanding of the suffering that he would need to endure as the Messiah. But the suffering had come, and so Jesus was ready to say who he really was. This was the culmination of his self-disclosure. And notice that, that he disclosed his true identity at the very moment when the planned purpose of Caiaphas' trial was on the verge of failure. His witnesses had been discredited. Jesus wasn't saying anything. But in order to force the hand of the Jews, Jesus broke his silence at this moment so that their trial would su succeed in their minds and, and they would have reason to condemn him to death. Do you see how Jesus, who was in control of everything, even the timing of the response he gave at the farce of this hearing. He was silent and silent and silent as witness after witness after witness spoke spewed falsehood after falsehood after falsehood. He patiently endured their dishonesty. But he spoke up when he needed to. He spoke up at the critical time so that he would be hoisted up on a cruciform tree for you and me. And what he said next shows us the ultimate confidence that Jesus had in God's plan for him. He wove together two famous passages from the Old Testament, Psalm 110.1, which speaks of the Messiah, the Son of David, who is also the Lord and will be seated with the Lord at his right hand, and Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, which refers to one like a son of man who will come with clouds to the ancient of days to be given glory and everlasting dominion and a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus said in verse 62, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Power is another way of referring to God. He will be coming with the clouds of heaven. And Jesus was not only saying that he was the Messiah, but he was also claiming to be the divine son of David. He was the one who would be exalted after his death as he rose to the right hand of his father. And he would ultimately be vindicated when he comes again in glory to judge and to save. There's, there's so much confidence in Jesus' response to Caiaphas. He was fully assured that despite needing to die on the cross, he would eventually be exalted to the right hand of God and vindicated in glory. And it's that confidence that allowed him to be silent in the midst of so many silent or false accusations against him. He silently endured 
so many injustices because he knew that justice was coming. God would vindicate him. He didn't need to do it himself. Instead, he needed to take up his cross and deny himself and follow the plan of God. Like a boxer, he was taking punch after punch after punch after a punch, knowing that the uppercut that he would throw, his father really would give him the power to throw that uppercut at the right time. That's such a helpful lesson for us to learn in our day and age. There's so much demand for justice today, isn't there? So many injustices in our society, whether it's racism, economic inequality, gender inequality, gun violence, war, abuse, you name it. We want these things to be righted. And that is a right, that's a biblical, that's a godly impulse. But where our impulse has turned sinful is our lack of trust in the Lord and in His plan as we seek justice now. It's a sin to work for justice and not trust that God is the one who will bring justice. The world has to demand and desire justice now because they have no trust in a God who will work things out in the end. And so there is great pressure in society there. People feel so burdened to bring about justice now. But justice will not come according to our timelines. Don't get me wrong. We should do justice. We should love kindness now. But Micah 6.8 tells us we must also walk humbly with our God. We must trust in His sovereign plan during turbulent and difficult days. And, and when we believe that God will bring a vindication, that allows us to endure the injustices that we will inevitably face for our faith and otherwise as residents of this world. The confidence that Jesus had in his ultimate vindication allowed him to endure the unfair mistreatment he faced at his trial. And we need to follow in his steps. Brothers and sisters, remember that Jesus, silent at his trial, could have responded with rejoinders, cross-examination, but he humbly held his tongue. He was willing to be wronged by others. And this was because he was confident in God's ultimate plan. The journey to Caiaphas' house, the chicanery of the trial, the confidence of Christ. Finally and briefly, I want you to notice the tragedy of injustice. The tragedy of injustice. Jesus' confidence and trust didn't mean that he wouldn't continue to face injustices. We read in verse 63 that after Jesus' confession, Caiaphas tore his garments that was something the Mishnah says that in cases of blasphemy, judges were to do. They were to stand up and rend their garments as an act of mourning for the desecration of the honor of God. And apparently this is what Caiaphas was doing. Jesus' words couldn't be condoned by him. And, and he said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his testimony. Overriding proper Jewish, Jewish prudence, Caiaphas called for a spot decision. He asked the Sanhedrin, what is your decision? And they, they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him. Their hatred for it and animosity toward Jesus is evident here. They demeaned him by spitting on him. They also covered his face and struck him, saying to him, prophesy. 
Matthew and Luke tell us they wanted him to tell them who was hitting him. The irony in all this is that Jesus had already prophesied all of this before. And the guards received him with blows. Jesus experienced the tragedy of injustice. His whole trial at the home of Caiaphas was a miscarriage of justice. And and if you read the Mishnah, you'll find an entire section in it regarding how the Sanhedrin was supposed to operate. And if you compare the ideals laid out in that document regarding Jewish law, you'll, you'll find that what happened to Jesus did not align at all with how things were supposed to be done. First, Jesus had been arrested by a bribe without a clear charge. Second, he was taken to trial in the middle of the night and on a feast day. And in cases of capital punishment, the Mishnah dictated that trials take place during the day and not on the eve of the Sabbath. Third, the trial was held outside the normal meeting place of the Sanhedrin. Fourth, false witnesses were allowed in Jesus' trial who brought conflicting testimony. Fifth, Jesus was asked to incriminate himself. Sixth, he was convicted and executed on the same day at his trial as his trial. But the Jewish rule was that while you could be acquitted on the same day, convictions require that you wait one day. Now granted, the Mishnah was written over a hundred years after Jesus' time. So we can't know if all the rules in it were exactly what was expected during Jesus' day. But the sheer number of potential transgressions just highlight how unfair this trial really was. Jesus wasn't given a fair shake. Said he was captured in the middle of the night to endure a rushed but planned trial designed to bring about his death. And when convicted, he wasn't treated with any dignity. He was spat upon, mocked, and beaten. Jesus knew what it was like to experience the injustices of a fallen, sinful world. Now, we've reached the end of our passage, and and if you're like me, when I finished this, it felt a little bit unsatisfying. There's no justice at the end of this trial. Truth has not prevailed. Jesus was unfairly accused and charged. Caiaphas, at least at the moment, seems to have won. But, but who will win in the end? We know the answer to that. Jesus was being carted around Jerusalem some more. He was going to go through more trials and questioning. He would eventually die. But that wouldn't be the end of his story. For the confident Christ, he would be resurrected in three days. He would be exalted to the Father's right hand, just as he predicted. And several decades later, the temple would be destroyed. The pride of Israel, the house of the Sanhedrin would be in ruins. Their power would be no more, but Jesus' power would endure, for he is still ruling with his Father and will one day come with the clouds of heaven to receive his everlasting kingdom and bring lasting justice to this world. You're going to face injustices in this world. But Jesus is still coming. As Jesus trusted in the Father's plan to vindicate him in the midst of the injustices he faced at his trial, you too can trust in the Lord to bring about his justice and to vindicate you at the right time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we learn about Jesus' trial, 
fills us with sadness to see how poorly he was treated, how much it must have hurt him to to hear so many false witnesses brought before him, and yet how patiently he endured all of that, and how wisely he responded at just the right time so that he could fulfill the mission that he was sent to this earth to perform, to die for us, to die for those who who sometimes bring false witness against him, even today in our own hearts and in our lives. Oh, Father, help us to learn from Jesus' example, to, to follow in his steps, to realize that we may be treated poorly in this world for our faith or even for other reasons, but to know that we can endure trusting just like Jesus did in your ultimate plan. We pray these things, trusting in the work of Jesus.